registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. All right, Dr. Nandi, thank you so much for coming on today. I am beyond excited to have you on here, especially because of our little conversation off-air I think the listeners today are really going to enjoy this conversation from an expert, of course, yourself, a doctor who, a gastroenterologist, um, who really specializes in inflammatory bowel disease. So a big, big thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Awesome. So can you tell me a little bit more um, kind of about... I guess, what you do in practice and kind of how you got into this field of specifically niching into IBD. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a gastroenterologist. uh, And so I treat the intestinal diseases. Uh, I specifically focus on the treatment of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, So I'm very niche, as you mentioned. Um, multiple factors led me that way. My, my father was diagnosed with Crohn's uh, in the early 1970s when the only treatments were prednisone and steroids. And so, um, you know, that uh, suffered an avascular necrosis of his hip and multiple side effects that he just kind of lived with for the rest of his life. Um, and then I had, you know, college roommates, you know, who I didn't realize had such severe um, inflammatory disease, Crohn's who I later came to learn. And then it made me realize as I went through medical school and did my formal training and started understanding health and disease that, you know, this was an area that I think I wanted to learn more about. Um, uh, And so I focused in my fellowship and went to a program uh, where you were heavily focused in inflammatory bowel diseases at the University of Miami. Um, There's a large Crohn's and colitis center there. And I think with the with those you know life stories, life influences, just genuine interest in, in how this disease uh, persists and seeing its effect on patients, which is dramatic. It's 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 painful to see when it's bad, and it's inspiring when you see patients overcome it. Um, and then having the right mentors and training kind of all coagulated together, if you will, into focusing on a career dedicated to inflammatory balances. That's amazing. So you mentioned, you know, you've, you've really had training that is, is very specific to inflammatory bowel disease. I work with a lot of patients who have IBD and they come to me typically after seeing a gastroenterologist and they're feeling kind of defeated, especially in terms of dietary and lifestyle stuff. As you mentioned, the typical recommendation to them is, you know, okay, here's a medication to resolve your symptoms and keep things at bay. Now, what, I mean, what is your approach to this? And, and I guess, what would you say to, um, you know, this, this field, this healthcare field in terms of um, where, where are we lacking here in terms of education or specialty? Because the stuff that we're going to talk about today, you know, diet and lifestyle and, um, you know, other methodologies that typically aren't discussed. I mean, why is it that you have this extensive knowledge, but there seems to be such a lack um, of knowledge amongst other practitioners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
Great question, right? Why are there so many few people who specialize in inflammatory bowel specifically? Now that's changing. You know, when I trained, um, gosh, it's been a decade since I finished all of my training. Um, there weren't a lot of programs just focusing on it or offering specialized training or fellowships in this. Uh, and my program happened to be one of those that did. Um, but there wasn't a lot of treatments available a decade ago, you know, but uh, so there weren't a lot of programs, a lot of options that could be offered. However, what was happening back then and has blossomed over the last 10 years, though, is that now we do have more treatments. We have more research. We have more insights, not just in medical therapies, but also diet that we'll get into about what is causing inflammatory bowel disease. And now over the last decade, you see many, many more fellowship programs and training programs that are focused on training gastroenterologists to solely focus on Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, but because there is that gap of doctors you know, who specialize in this, it's an intimidating disease to many doctors, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. When you have the complications of stricture and fistula, weight loss, when you have women who are pregnant um, you know, and carrying them through these flares and, and help having them have successful babies, it's a very intimidating field, or it can be. But that's why training is needed um, because there still needs to be greater access to gastroenterologists who have an interest in this, who want to take care of Crohn's and colitis patients. I recommend patients, they can go to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, uh, uh, ccfa.org, uh, and find a doctor there. There's a doctor finder there. And the only way a doctor's name gets on that site is if they went in and put their name on there and have been vetted by the, by the organization as someone who is actually vested and interested in taking care of Crohn's and colitis patients. So there are doctors who, who did not have that, maybe that formal training, but learned it on their own out of a genuine desire. And that is how the many, that is how most gastroenterologists have treated IBD by learning on their own, right? Mm. And then there's a, a growing cadre of IBD doctors who, who specifically completed training in this fellowship programs around the country and the world. And you can find those doctors at the Doctor Finder on, on Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. That's a great resource. Thank you so much for sharing because I think it, it is really hard, you, as you mentioned, to find a specialist and you want the best type of care because this is something that's impacting your entire quality of life. So let's talk about 100%. what the overview, just kind of an overview of um, ulcerative colitis versus Crohn's, um, kind of what the two differences are between the two. And then we can talk about, you know, when are typically people diagnosed, maybe people that are listening don't have any like knowledge of IBD and maybe they're struggling with digestive issues and they're concerned that, you know, somewhere down the line, they could develop this, or maybe they aren't, aren't aware that this is something that could show up later in life. So maybe start with the basics of kind of each of them and then walk into the rest of the details. Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably the biggest um, misinformation or misconception is IBS and IBD. And just to start there, you know, a lot of patients have heard of IBS. They might, you know, confuse it in, in, in lay language with IBD. IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and IBD is something very different. It's called inflammatory bowel disease. And patients can have both, which we'll get into a little later. But um, the main crux of it is both types of patients can experience GI discomfort. That means like abdominal discomfort, changes in their stools, anywhere from diarrhea to even constipation, believe it or not, um, abdominal bloat, gas, distension, um, maybe nausea. However, 
The big difference uh, is that when you take a camera, colonoscopy or endoscopy even, and you place that inside the patient's intestine who has IBD, you see an angry intestine. Instead of being nice, healthy, and pink, like you might see in IBS, you see an IBD patient with ulcers and bleeding, cuts, um, swelling of the tissue. And those are things you don't see in IBS. Mm. That's not to say that IBS is not a real uh, disease. It definitely is. Um, but IBS patients, their intestine looks healthy. Um, IBD patients, their intestine definitely is ulcerated and diseased. IBS patients have healthy intestines, but their disease is mediated by a totally different uh, mechanism. Now, when it comes to IBD, there's two types, two umbrella types, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. But there's also patients who have overlapping features of each called indeterminate colitis. By and large, ulcerative colitis affects the colon, and that's characterized by bloody diarrhea. That's the hallmark, blood, 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 diarrhea. Um, and Crohn's disease is very rarely characterized by blood. Usually it's abdominal discomfort. You may have diarrhea or not. Um, you may uh, definitely malabsorb nutrition depending on where the disease is. Um, you can have weight loss with both instances, both disease types. But it's, um, and then the other thing to know is I mentioned indeterminate colitis is where people have features of both, meaning they may have uh, some symptoms and some uh, ulcers located in different parts of their intestine that conflict with a neat diagnosis of Crohn's or a neat diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. That's why they have this diagnosis of indeterminate colitis. And if I'm being honest with you, Aaron, and our listeners, um, it's not fair to just say that there's even three types of IBD, Crohn's, UC, and indeterminate. There's probably hundreds of types of each. We're looking at patients on a spectrum of disease. And uh, so, so they may fall anywhere amongst the spectrum because different things coalesce to cause their unique type of inflammatory balances. Yeah, that, and let's talk about that. I mean, the, the different things that can, can cause these symptoms and, and this to occur in individuals. So we can look at things like the immune system, we can look at the microbiome and, you know, having imbalances in the gut microbiome, the research has pointed towards specific trends that we've seen of specific types of bacteria that are more elevated in these um, individuals. We can talk about, you know, stress and how that plays into, um, you know, onset of disease. And then of course, specific nutrients and, and things like even hydration status um, over time. So is there, are there things that you would say are the most common for reasons why we're seeing these, um, these diseases come on with individuals? Like, is there, is it, do you think it's mostly immune dysregulation? Do you think it's mostly um, you know, imbalances the gut microbiota. Do you think there is one specific thing that's that's really uh, at the forefront of of the diagnosis? Aaron, you hit on a lot of things, and I think those are great. And I think it's all of the above. That's what I would say. <laughs> it's all of the above. Um, and you know, that's a that's um, it, it's a complex interplay of how genetics program our immune system and how that immune system interacts with the environment. Now, let me go back into a little bit more detail there. If you look at um, our intestine, if you were to look at it, it's a, it's a long tube from mouth to rectum. The small intestine, you have your esophagus and your stomach pouch, your small intestine, which is 23 feet long, and then your colon, also known as a large intestine. That's a very long tube. And every single uh, system, every single segment of that tube um, serves a different function. But what's amazing to me is that when you look at the intestine, you take a biopsy of it, 
if you were to take a full thickness biopsy of that tube, you would find that the bulk of your our immune system is actually located in the intestinal submucosa. Um, inside the intestinal wall itself, okay? About 60 to 70% of our immune system is located there. And that's not by mistake. So your immune system is there. Then you have the intestinal wall, the inner lining, right? If you look at the inside of your cheek, that's pink, just like our entire intestinal lining. And then what's inside the intestinal lining, the hollow lumen of the intestine? That is where we have our gut flora, which is bacteria, which is yeast, which is viruses, that whole flora microbiome. But then it's also influenced by what we put into that microbiome, what we feed it, what nurtures it, our diet, how medicines that we take may influence the health, growth, or demise of that gut flora from anything like ibuprofen, which can cause ulcerations in the gut, to antibiotics, which can be like a nuclear bomb, devastating gut flora as well, to the different types of food, be it processed or not. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Other things have been associated that affect um, inflammatory bowels, specifically like tobacco. If you smoke cigarettes, it can actually make Crohn's worse. And in up to 70% of UC patients, it may be protected. So there is a complex interplay that happens, a crosstalk between our environment. And when I say environment, not just things physically outside of our body. I mean, things that are outside of our body that we put into our body that end up in our gut lumen. That crosstalk occurs across our intestinal membrane, and it crosstalks to our immune system, which is programmed in part, some, some part by genetics, but in large part programmed early when we were born, okay? Um, so there's a, a lot of things at play that help create this disease that we finally call inflammatory bowel disease. You with me so far? Absolutely, yes. So, you know, um, I tried, you know, this can be still very complex, even for myself to wrap my head around. But when I talk to my patients, the biggest thing they tell me is, well, I have a friend or I know somebody who also has my illness, Crohn's or UC, what have you. And this, this worked for them or this didn't work for them. Um, but why isn't it doing the same for me? And that's because they're uniquely different. Right. So the analogy I like to give is a bridge. If you imagine this beautiful bridge, right? Maybe the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, spanning two land masses, uh, the bridge hovering over water. It's amazing, right? There's trusses, there's wires, there's all this engineering and support mechanisms and reinforcements, right? That went in to keep that bridge up functioning. Now, if you and I looked away and, we, and, and the bridge went into shambles, gosh, forbid that ever happened. I'm just saying, for example purposes, and we came upon the bridge and the bridge was totally broken down and collapsed, we would be asking ourselves, well, what part of that bridge collapsed? Was it this truss, that truss? Was it this wire? Was it this reinforcement, this barb, this screw, which, that bolt? We don't know. But we know that the end result was the collapsed bridge, the IBD. Mm. And so when we think about what causes it, right? We always want to find the underlying cause. It's very complex. It may not have been just one thing. It may have been several things, right? That, that, that led to that bridge collapsing. And in, in this analogy, we think, is it, is it our genetics? Is it the environment, diet? Is it the immune system? And so it becomes very complex. And that's why I tell my patients, it's not just one thing um, that contributed to your IBD. And likewise, it's also not one thing uh, that's going to help fix you. That's going to help, you know, help heal another person. It's not going to be that equal. Right. Um, and I think that when we talk to our patients about 
diet being a significant factor uh, that we feel is part of our environment. This is where we have more questions than answers, but there's a lot of new research that's, that's starting to help clarify what role diet may have in developing and possibly treating inflammatory bowel disease. Well said. And I think I, I love that example of the bridge. I think that's fantastic. And um, you know, when, when you, when I think of environment, I'm also thinking of the bridge and I'm thinking, you know, what was the weather like? And, you know, what, what type of stress did that add to the bridge? And that's such a great example to describe not even just IBD, but other health issues that arise, um, you know, in our, in our communities. And you also mentioned the, the medication side of things. And, you know, I work with a lot of females who, um, you know, are on oral contraceptives. And this was one, one research study that I had looked at um, about 7,500 women um, were taking these oral contraceptives and they had found an increased risk for inflammatory bowel disease. And I, I will say just from an anecdotal perspective, you know, when I see clients go off of these types of medications, um, a lot of the times their symptoms do get worse. And I don't say that to, to bash oral contraceptives or any specific medication, but just to keep everybody's, um, you know, their, their minds open to the different things that could, could worsen these symptoms or could trigger these symptoms because, uh, yeah, it's complex and it's not as simple, but I think, uh, this would be a good place to kind of, you know, transition into the diet aspect of IBD because this, I think there, there is a lot of controversy. Um, I, I even, I have a friend who, She's working as part of a research study in Boston where I live and they're developing, you know, a drug for IBD. And I, I asked her, I said, you know, what does your, you know, boss think about the, the dietary aspect of it? And, you know, she said, oh, she, there, there's really no, um, there's no diet that's like good for IBD. Like that was just kind of a hard consensus. And that, that really that bothered me because, you know, when, when you mentioned the, the root causes, when you think about inflammation, when you think about genetics and how we can actually alter um, gene expression, when you think about things like our gut microbiome and, and that it, all, diet can influence all of those things. Right. Yes. So yes. that answer for mm -hmm. me was, was just so, I, I just, I, I knew in my, you know, in my gut, <laughs> pun intended, that that was not an acceptable answer. And I just thought, you know, that's a shame that, you know, some people are writing diet off as being um, just because we don't have a one size fits all recommendation for these clients doesn't mean that it's not something that we should absolutely be focusing on. So I'd, I'd love to just open up the discussion for the, the dietary things here. Yeah, no, 100%. Let's, let's get into the meat of it, although I'm vegan. <laughs> yeah, you know, benefit of the doubt to that doctor. I don't know what how exactly what they said. But certainly, I agree with you, Aaron, that um, uh, you know, we don't have a magic diet that works for all, but diet, there's no doubt in my mind, okay, um, that there is a huge role, huge role for diet in not just gut health, but all human health. And this should not be a revolutionary statement, right? This, this, is, this is just like common sense 101, right? You, you, you are what you eat. We know, uh, you know, when I was growing up, you know, everyone wanted to become a cardiologist in medical school, but you know, I was always fascinated with the gut and the, the running joke was, well, the heart's where it's at, you know, but, you know, I think the gut is where it's at, right? We, we have linked so many illnesses in human health to the gut, um, the microbiome and the function of the gut and how the gut interacts with our brain. 
Um, and, and we and know now more than too. <laughs> and, and our heart. God is related to our heart health too. So that's a win-win for you. Now you're, you're crossing multiple bridges it, here. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And then, you know, all, obviously they're all, all, all organs are important. So, you know, you know, jokes aside, right. So they're all important, <laughs> but definitely diet influences the health of the body and the gut. And when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease, we have um, multiple studies. Now this is an evolving science. We have several studies that have been done recently. Okay that do suggest, um, excuse me, that do suggest an important and evolving role for how diet can influence gut health and specifically inflammatory bowel disease patients. I'm going to elaborate. When we look at anecdotal studies, just prevalent studies around the world, if we go back a couple decades in time, all right, so my listeners, Aaron, we go back several decades in time to the 1970s, and every decade we go and survey how common Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is in not just North America, but we go to South America, we go to South Asia, where I'm from, I'm Indian by birth, um, um, where if we go to Asia, um, Europe, right? We find that back then, several decades ago, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis was more common in developing nation or developed nations. I kind of hate that word, but westernized countries where there was more um, uh, electricity and modern luxuries of living, shall we say, right? And that there was less inflammatory disease in those countries such as South Asia, okay, India. Um, uh, and it was, we don't believe that it was due to underdiagnosis, okay, with the way these studies were done. But then if we go return every decade and we find out, um, well, what's the prevalence this decade? We have found that in countries specifically like in India, like in Delhi or Mumbai or Calcutta, that there's actually increasing prevalence of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis that is not explained uh, by over by more diagnosis. Um, and it turns out that some of these cities may ha have an infiltration of more Western practices of lifestyle. Yeah. When I mean lifestyle, I mean not just Western diet of uh, fast food companies uh, infiltrating those, those markets, um, but also... Um, you know, uh, detergents and colognes and soaps. I have no idea whether those last few are related, but I'm just saying that type of lifestyle um, where it was not the, the standard of, of, of how you lived your daily life. But we find an increased uh, incidence of Crohn's and colitis. Now, when we look uh, at those populations, we think diet is influencing it. Now, in this country, in the last two years, we have at least... Um, several studies that I could point to um, that look at diet and how it affects Crohn's. One that's just blatant, okay, um, it's European pediatric Crohn's studies have looked at um, EEN or exclusive enteral nutrition for Crohn's disease. Now, this is a diet um, that's not very palatable long-term, especially if you're an adult. It doesn't taste good. This is typically taken by little kids through a, a tube in the nose that ends in their intestine, and they get an elemental diet. Um, and it can actually melt um, the Crohn's away. They have 90 to 100% remission of the Crohn's. Isn't that amazing? Wow, you know? that is incredible. Yeah, and that's, but, but the thing is, how long can one do that for? Mm. Right? I could probably do it for two days and then I would drive myself up a wall. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not very palatable. It's not pleasant. And, you know, little kids are stronger than adults by all, by all means. I see mm -hmm. little kids drop their own tubes at Camp Oasis uh, all the time. Um, and, and they're just amazing. But as an adult, I wouldn't be able to do it, you know, um, you know, um, but uh, it's not long term. So we know that that's an extreme example of how um, 
element, you know, luminal nutrition can influence the activity of ulcers in the gut. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about palatable diets, right? So one diet that was studied in ulcerative colitis uh, by Dr. Maria Abreu um, was, uh, this was, this was actually done about a year and a half ago, I believe. Um, but they actually looked at the standard American diet abbreviated SAD, isn't that ironic? SAD, S-A-D, <laughs> standard American diet. Right? Appropriate, Which very appropriate. Very appropriate, right? And what, what does that mean to our viewers? It means like higher fat, low fat, uh, higher fat, low fiber, um, and then they looked at, you know, a modification of the diet, which was um, less fat, actually, um, a low fat diet. And they found that um, there was a trend towards improvement in ulcerative colitis patients. Now, these were mild to moderate UC patients. And they found that there was some improvement in some of the inflammatory markers. Um, and uh, they think that there was an expansion of some of these, you know, helpful gut bacteria like F. Prausnitsi. And you mentioned, mm. you know, mentioned that in our opening uh, to the program. So, so there is some help, some influence on gut flora and some influence on symptoms and even healing um, with a diet that's lower in, in fat. Now we have to remember, and I'm speaking to you, Aaron, and, and our community uh, of dietitians, you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, right? That there's different types of fats. Not all fats are created equal. Um, there's another study that was done called the DINE CD trial, which, which was actually done by one of my colleagues here, um, uh, Jim Lewis, and, and, and many other wonderful uh, clinicians, scientists in the field, um, uh, through a grant through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And they looked at the effect of a specific carbohydrate, a specific carbohydrate diet versus the Mediterranean diet. And they did this in a very controlled manner. Uh, patients were enrolled um, over 12 weeks. In the first six weeks, they were randomized to either get um, the STD diet, half of them, or the other half got the Mediterranean diet. And what was interesting was at the end of their study, um, they found uh, that the, and then the last six weeks they could, they could, you know, pursue the diet that they wanted to on their own. And the meals were catered to them during the first six weeks. So they got a controlled fixed diet, three meals a day and two snacks, either SCD or Mediterranean. And so this was delivered, delivered to them every Friday. And, and that's what they ate during those six weeks. And then samples were taken, blood, questionnaire surveys. And they found that whichever diet you were in, about half the patients actually improved clinically and symptomatically. It didn't matter what arm, which is which is fascinating to me, right? It's amazing. Um, I was hoping and, for that outcome too, because I'm thinking like specific carbohydrate diet is a little restrictive. I mean, it's very it's very restrictive for a lot of people. So, and I I'm a big proponent for the Mediterranean diet, especially with the research that I've seen. So, yay. Okay, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And what and what you said there's really important too. I think, Aaron. Right. You said that you know some diets are restrictive, right? And when they're restrictive, they they can lead to a negative relationship. With those foods, it can lead to boredom and lack of palate. It can lead to weight loss, right? Oh, Unhealthy yeah. uh, malnutrition and weight loss. So we, we also need, we look at these diets, they're controlled, they give us insights, but it doesn't mean that that's the way or that's the magic diet, right? We all, I think, I, I believe that individual patients, individuals are so different that they really need to work not just with their gastroenterologist, but with a dietitian to find out what works for their body, what works for their symptoms. And if, there, if you do not have a dietitian as part of your game plan, as part of your, your medical treatment plan, you're missing out. 
That's yeah. what I tell all of my patients. They need to have a dietitian on board because I can give generalizations. I can give guidance, but it takes a dedicated professional to help you map out trial and sadly error and figure out what works for that individual patient. And if you don't have a dietitian, you're, you're only you know, hitting part of your treatment plan. You're missing out on how well you possibly could be. Well, I 100% agree on that. I'm a little biased, but <laughs> I will say, you know, when I work with IBD patients or even really anyone who is struggling with digestion overall, whether it's IBS or, you know, other conditions, celiac, I always say, you know, on our discovery calls, we are, we are a team. This is not a, you know, I am superior over here. I, I have plenty of knowledge and I, and most, most of the cases I have a lot more knowledge because I've dedicated my life to this, but I am not sitting here as, you know, your professor or, you know, someone who's telling you what to do. And then you follow that to the T and then you see the results. It's, I give you advice. I share my knowledge. I share my research. And then you give me the feedback about what's going on in your body, how this made you feel. And I think really have to hone in on that relationship with food because, you know, I've talked to clients who have said, I don't want to eat. I do. I have no interest in eating. I am. I just, everything makes me feel sick. And then I've also been given all these rules about, you know, I should be following the low FODMAP diet or I should be following this diet. And so those restrictions put more burden and then further worsen their relationship with food. And what does that lead to nutrient deficiencies, um, you know, negativity around eating and, and weight loss. And, and it's just not, it's not healthy if that is, if that is the approach. So I love the research that you've shared. And I'd, I'd also like to talk a little bit about, especially because you mentioned um, you follow a vegan diet. And I've, I've looked into the research in terms of um, animal proteins. And I've seen you know, some large prospective cohort studies that found that high protein diet, specifically animal proteins, um, was more positively associated with an increased risk for IBD. Um, I've seen some systematic reviews of high total protein intake with the development of ulcerative colitis. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. And I can share just in a few simple words. My general approach is that I'm not ever going to ask anyone to go vegan, but I think it's, again, the context that you look at what the, the animal proteins are in. So is this a a standard American diet where, you know, you're eating lots of animal proteins in the context of a standard American diet, or are you eating animal proteins in the context of a Mediterranean whole food plant, plant-based diet? So yeah. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my journey to veganism, I'm a, I'm a new vegan actually. Oh, okay. um, but, but there's no doubt in my mind. So I, I was grown, uh, I grew up eating meat, potatoes, uh, and tons of seafood. That was my culture uh, of, of the part of South Asia that I'm from, which is West Bengal. And uh, our culture is we um, were not vegetarian. We ate meat and fish and vegetables. We ate everything. And that's how I was raised. Um, but over the last, um, I would say going back uh, six years or so, I started to change my diet. And it was initially motivated by health, uh, personal motivation for health, and then uh, talking to my, my patients, actually, my IBD patients, because um, these were the discussions we were having in clinic. This, these are not discussions or lessons that I had as a medical student, as a resident, or um, a little bit as a fellow, but not enough. Um, and these are, I, I learned in the clinic room from my patients how diet was affecting their health. Um, and I started reading more papers 
Um, and I started slowly transitioning more towards from everything to like pescatarian and then, um, uh, you know, grossly vegetarian and then full on vegetarian for all of 2020 before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then I became vegan just this, you know, going into 21. Um, and it, it also helped that my wife, who is a nutrition and fitness fiend, has been vegan uh, for many, several years and vegetarian for several years prior to that. So she was a good role model and supporter, right? Um, but we did it individually. And my point in telling you all this and your viewers and your listeners is it's a, it's a very personal choice diet. Um, everyone has different reasons. It doesn't have to have to happen overnight and it ha- it's okay to be gradual and nobody should force you into it or push you into dietary changes, whichever way you go has to be, you have to have the right reasons and you got to do it on your own pace. The main thing I encourage everybody is to be open to the science, open to change and trying new things out and seeing how their body feels. Me, I feel amazing um, uh, since I um, cut out animal-based proteins from my diet. Now, that's enough about me here. I'll let me talk about No, it's, I think it's helpful to hear to the listeners. And and I just kind of make want to make a joke here too about, you know, 2021 or 2020 being a good year to go plant-based considering the meat shortages that we had. I just remember being at, uh, you know, putting my order in at Whole Foods and it was like, you know, God forbid you try to get some wild caught salmon because everybody was, you know, scavenging the shelves. So beans, legumes, you know, those, those things were maybe a little bit more plentiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, um, you know, other things that went into my decision that helped in 2020 were, you know, environmental and ethical impacts of, of farming and raising and agriculture of, of animal-based proteins, whether they're land roaming or sea swimming. Um, but, but whenever, you know, you need food and you're in a pinch, you can't go wrong with plants and uh, sure. you can feel good about it. Um, but let's get back into that. So you're right. You know, there was a Dutch study. There's been several studies that have actually looked at risk factors, how diet as a risk factor for the development of IBD, right? Now, once you have IBD, those studies don't apply to you, right? You have it. What about the studies that look at how diet impacts your active disease? So that's why the Dine CD trial by Dr. Lewis and, um, uh, the, the lower fat diet with Dr. Abreu, uh, and also colitis patients. That's why these diets, which are just some of the ones that have been done, some of the great studies that have been done, are so important. And, and we have more research yeah, that needs to be fulfilled, right? But the, the, the studies have shown that westernized diets, high in animal proteins, uh, specifically red meat, lower in um, veg- fresh vegetable, fresh fruit intake, um, low, I'm sorry, high in refined grains, okay? Those are the diets that are associated with the development of IBD. When we look at the studies that look at IBD alone, you have it, what do we do? There's, there's only a few that really address it well. There was a Dutch study um, that was done not too long ago. There was about over 420 patients or so, and about a quarter of these patients um, had actually developed a flare during the study, but they were on different diets. One was pretty much a, a Dutch diet, basically a westernized diet, high animal protein, higher in red meat intake, low fr- fruit vegetables, higher in refined grains. And then there was two other diets that were basically variations of a Mediterranean diet. And as you mentioned, Aaron, they found that over the course of the study, the patients who were in remission were more likely to have had a lower intake of animal protein, specifically red meat, and they had a higher intake of vegetables um, and, uh, you know, a higher intake of fiber, basically. Um, so again, it, it's, it's suggesting to us that a 
plant-based, which does not mean vegetarian or vegan. It means a more plant-based diet with lower intake of animal proteins, particularly red, may be beneficial in helping to reduce frequency of flare. Um, and I think that's powerful, right? Uh, you know, when a patient with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, my heart goes out to them, right? They're, they're getting dehydrated. They're in a pain that most of us cannot understand or experience. They're, they're uh, malnourished. They're missing out on the prime of their life, which in my opinion is their entire life, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they're trying to be a, a new parent or go to school, become a CEO, they're a teacher, whatever they are, right? They're trying to retire, right? It's the prime of their life. And this disease is robbing them of, of, of that quality that they deserve. So diet presents itself as an actionable and effective way of reducing frequency of flare. That's my understanding and interpretation of literature and how I apply it to my patients and, and is a important tool. It's, it's, it's a treatment in of its own, not just the medications that we prescribe out of necessity, necessity in the clinic. So diet and medications and also mental health and, 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 and fitness, all these things tie in and there's data for all these things tie in to what we call comprehensive, holistic care in treating an IBD patient effectively. Well said, very well said. And as I, as I listen to you, I try to picture what other people might be thinking in their heads, like, okay, so fiber is good. So maybe I should be taking a fiber supplement. And uh, one mention here would be in the research that I've seen, fiber supplements have not been shown to benefit patients with IBD, but soluble fiber from food is one of the best ways to generate short-chain fatty acids, which, um, for instance, butyrate, which has these anti-inflammatory effects, especially in the colon. So actionable steps here for increasing you know, soluble fiber, things like citrus fruits, beans, and legumes, um, as you know, you mentioned, fresh fruits and vegetables, things like that. Um, diet, it's incredible. And, you know, we really can't discount that. So thank you so much for breaking down the literature and, you know, also sharing your personal experience. My pleasure. My pleasure. I got to say one other thing about diet, which is um, in, in our, in our society, uh, we're, a cre we're very privileged to have the abundance of food. Yeah. Um, much of it is processed. Um, and when I mean processed, I mean foods that have been undergone chemical processes or been enhanced um, or had chemicals added to them to extend their shelf life so that they don't spoil on the shelf. Um, and there's, there's emerging science that has, has existed actually for, for a number of years to show that many of these food additives actually alter our gut microbiome. And not only that, but have negative effects on the health of mucosa, intestinal mucosa. Now, most of these are done in mice and we are not mice. I, I give anybody that. Um, we are not mice, um, but it's helpful to know that dietary emulsifiers like polysorbate 80 or carboxymethylcellulose, they disrupt the types of gut bacteria that are there. It makes sense, you're adding a chemical, it's gonna influence the types of gut flora that are there. Um, and some of those gut flora are protective. They actually help us. They protect us from bad pathogenic invaders in trying to get into the lining of our gut. Um, Another one that's very common, ubiquitous, is polysaccharide maltodextrin, um, which has been shown to induce endoplasmic reticular stress in goblet cells, which are um, important cells inside every cell of our body, including our intestine. And when, and when this happens, it's been shown in, again, animal studies to impair the release 
of mucus. Our intestinal lining is called mucosa because it releases mucus from goblet cells. And that mucus, that gel, is a protective barrier that prevents bad organisms from getting into our intestinal cells. So if we don't have good mucus release, um, then we don't have a protective layer of mucus, a protective layer of healthy bacteria, and we may be at more uh, uh, folly or risk uh, for some type of intestinal disease to develop, be it an infection or inflammatory bowel disease. Again, nothing is as simple as one chemical, one study, this or that. It's a combination of these things. So I tell most of my patients, you can enjoy the good stuff. It's not that you can't have like, you know, um, some processed food. I think if you go to extremes, it becomes too limiting and depressing. But I tell them next time, you know, try to limit how many Twinkies you eat. You know, there's a reason there's something wrong when a Twinkie doesn't degrade after a century of being on the shelf. Okay. Yeah, we did that experiment. Um, there's something. In, yeah, in science class. And when I was in like ninth grade. Did you really? Yes, yes. And it was, we, the whole semester we sat there and every day we came in and I just remember all my friends, it was like, even just after a month, we were like, wow, it is, nothing has happened to it. It looks exactly the same. And then at the end, I think, um, you know, he broke it open, my science teacher, after the the whole year no change, really no change whatsoever. And that's so scary, right? And, you know, like, you know, I don't want to over scare people, but like, you know, that's just an extreme example telling us that we should be not fearful of food, you know, don't over restrict yourself, but question what it is that we put into our dream. And if, and if, and, and there's no, no harm in doing that. We should not feel threatened to do that. We, it, it's actually empowering to understand I have the power to control what I put into my body. And if I put my good stuff in my body, it's going to have a good outcome, right? If I put bad stuff in my body, it may harm me. And so overall, food for thought, haha, you know, think about what you put in your body before, yeah. before you eat it. And, and, and if you're going to have some of the, the extra flavorful, uh, luxurious good stuff, moderate it. Absolutely. And you mentioned these food additives, which, and, and I've seen these isolated studies on these specific ingredients and, and, um, you know, emulsifiers and things like that. And, you know, artificial sweeteners are things that I always recommend to limit. You know, I'm always asking people, why, why are we consuming excess artificial sweeteners? Are we feeding this, this uncontrollable sweet tooth? Are we trying to you know, eat more of something that we feel guilty about. Um, and then there's, there's research on glyphosate, right? I've seen research on glyphosate exposure and how that can, um, you know, cause harm to the gut lining. And there's, I don't think there's enough research here, but there are a lot of these different additives and, and, um, and where do we find these additives? They're in processed foods. And, Am I sitting over here saying that I eat perfectly 100% of the time? No, I just I just had an awesome trip to Nashville. I was eating, you know, donuts and and some ice cream here and there, but you know, there's there's that concept of balance and, you know, these things shouldn't be making up um 100% of our diet and and that's that's kind of the bottom line is is really make sure that you're looking at the total load of these items that are are taking over your your lifestyle essentially. Hundred percent. I totally agree. So I'd love to talk really quickly just about um, you know the association between low vitamin D, omega three fats. I think one thing you you brought up was, uh, and I'm gonna totally probably botch this name. I, I memorized it when I was doing my last recording, but fecal um, fecal bacterium prausninski. 
um, that bacteria was associated with, or I can't exactly remember the details, but the research showed that individuals who had COVID-19 had higher levels of this bacteria. And so when you, when you also mentioned the alterations in this bacteria and the increased risk for IBD, I'm kind of coming full circle here. Um, but looking at low levels of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids, the research has shown that low levels of vitamin D appear to be a risk factor for IBD um, and low omega-3 fatty acid intake from foods um, is also shown to protect against intestinal inflammation. However, the research also has shown that supplementation with omega-3 fats um, might not be the best protection um, to decrease risk of relapse in patients with Crohn's disease. Is that, is that, have you seen that consistent with the research? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that one thing that is when we look at all these research studies, you know, they're all clues, right? And, and, and the thing about research is it, it hardly ever mimics real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we can see certain things in a study, but applying them to the real world is, is challenging. So let's, let's take them one by one. Um, for both vitamin D and omega-3s, the studies have suggest, these are association studies. They show that lower levels or lower consumption um, in diets is associated with um, increased uh, uh, IBD disease activity in some studies, not all, some studies contradict that, mm-hmm. but some, but some studies gen- generally trend towards saying that they're associated with increased risk of flare. So, you know, in my own personal practice, I proactively check vitamin D levels and I um, very aggressively supplement vitamin D specifically um, for my patients. Um, the, the, and then I do that for, um, multiple reasons. One, because I, um, this, the studies suggest it may boost the immune system. Mm-hmm. It may increase, uh, tight junctions, um, and, uh, uh, which are the tightness between intestinal cells, how, how closely packed they are, um, and, uh, decrease intestinal permeability. And it may, um, improve flares. Now the, I say may, 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 I'm caveating a lot because we do not, to the best of my knowledge, have any prospective human studies that show that vitamin D has those benefits. We don't, um, you know, but, but those are being developed. Okay. In the meantime, though, I'm still doing it because um, in addition to good bone health, I think that there's low risk and potential benefit for my patients to supplement them with vitamin D. Um, and, but again, to be honest, we need a prospective study to validate that, Hey, this actually works, that you're taking it for a good reason. We know it is good for bone health. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that's how I look at vitamin D. I try to encourage my patients to have, you know, healthy dietary sources of vitamin D. Um, um, and, and that's doable, even if you're on a, a mostly plant-based diet as well, you just have to be mindful of, of where you get your nutrition and your supplements. Um, and omega-3, same, same, very same story. I don't ask my patients to supplement omega-3, but I tell them to try to focus on um, having a low amount of uh, animal-based uh, oils, but focusing on plant-based oils in moderation even. Um, it's interesting that you brought up, you know, F. presnitsi. You know, the studies have shown, you know, modest changes in gut flora. You know, the F. presnitsi has been associated with less recurrence of Crohn's and, and higher rates of remission, you know, particularly 
you know, in, in that one study that I mentioned with ulcerative colitis, uh, you know, the standard American diet versus a, a slightly lower fat diet um, that Maria Abreu did. Um, those studies are, are pretty consistent. Problem is, though, we just don't understand how to manipulate yeah, that Yeah, how do we actually flora. apply that? Yeah. You know, um, we know bacteria, I mean, antibiotics can demolish, right? It's like a hammer, right? Nuclear bomb. It's not very, antibiotics are not very... Um, specific you know they're they're very they're like brute force um, medicines which don't get me wrong they're life-saving and they're very powerful and helpful in the right setting but then how to increase those gut flora you know there's no magic probiotic which exists on the order of billions compared to trillions in our in our body that's been shown to increase um f prosnitsi or other flora and um you know can it be through prebiotics you know through inulin or other types of fiber sources and most of the studies are just too mixed and flawed or not long-term enough or poorly funded or poorly uh, scrutinized um, in their outcomes to really make good conclusions. So that's, that's the, the story of, of where research is at as of 2020. But in 2021, I, I can assure you that the studies that have been plotted and funded and, and planned out are trying to do away with the bad science and, and trying to do fund studies that are intelligently done and try to answer these questions rather than doing these other studies that, that just don't give us generalizable conclusions. So we don't have all the answers yet, but I'm quite confident in the next five to 10 years, which seems like a long time, but it'll flash by. We're going to have a lot more answers about how to utilize diet as a treatment weapon against IBD to heal IBD. That's very exciting. Very exciting to hear. So fecal transplants, what is up with this? Because this is something I've been following in the literature on multiple different topics with neurodegenerative diseases, um, you know, all sorts of health issues. But I mean, what, what, what role does this have and what place, you know, where can we start to see this in terms of um, IBD? Yeah, um, so it's a pretty exciting field. I've been doing um, stool transplants since uh, 2009. I had heard about them in 2001, I think, when I was a medical student, um, but they were kind of under the radar. Um, the earliest one was done 4,000 years ago. The first one in America was done in 1952 in Amer uh, by a surgeon uh, for what he didn't know was probably C. diff back then. Um, and uh, C. diff in about 2000, 2001 underwent a mutation and we became a rampant type of infection um, at, in, into the 21st century. It wasn't like that before in the 20th century. And when antibiotics weren't helping, um, taking healthy stool from a healthy donor, blending it in saline and then infusing it back into the colon of a patient with C. diff proved to be very effective. And I mean, very effective. I mean, better efficacy and treatment cure rates than for C. difficile specifically than antibiotics. Okay. So stool transplants can, for recurrent C. diff without IBD, have a cure rate of 90 to 100%, um, which is phenomenal. Whereas wow. antibiotics only range in 40 to 60% cure rates. Um, but it's not a prime time therapy yet. That's changing. There are several uh, biopharma companies that have mined the microbiome and have developed several clusters or um, selected certain species of bacteria um, to be infused as enemas or to be encapsulated and swallowed that are demonstrating efficacy in early phase two, phase three studies um, 
against recurrent C. diff. So those, we expect some of them to come to market in the next year to two, um, hopefully, without any further delays. Um, but I don't have a crystal ball for when the FDA will approve all that, when all the study data will be out. Now, in terms of IBD, IBD patients get C. diff at a higher rate than patients who don't have IBD. Um, so using stool transplants for C. diff and IBD patients is also very effective in about 80% efficacy, still better than antibiotics. And sometimes those patients need more than one stool transplant. However, your question, can stool transplant improve Crohn's and or ulcerative colitis alone? No C. diff at all. And the, the answers are muddled. So far, the studies on Crohn's disease do, Crohn's disease do not seem to show that FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation does not seem to be effective in Crohn's. However, in ulcerative colitis, um, it has been studied, many studies, there are at least three studies that come to mind. Um, one of the more recent ones is called the FOCUS study, uh, which was done um, uh, University of South Wales in Australia. And they basically showed that stool transplant helped um, about about 27% of the patients in their study actually went into remission. Um, they didn't require steroids and they demonstrated some healing of their intestine, again, mild to moderate UC, which is pretty amazing, right? That you can take stool from a healthy person, put it in. Now there's a couple caveats. The stool that was infused was not from one donor. It was from multiple donors. So it was a super pulled vat of stool. Don't get too graphical on this. Don't think about this too hard. Not, not very, not very pleasant to think about it, but, but it basically that they took a super, super stool um, and um, they infused this great concoction into the patients once through a colonoscopy. Um, and then they received enemas for five days of the week for the next eight weeks. So this is a regular therapy that they underwent with the patients in this study. There are only about, I think about 41 patients in that study. Um, only about 11 of them are so improved. Um, and uh, the others uh, mostly did not. About two patients in the placebo arm, the placebo arm was actually autologous self-donated stool. So they pre-banked their own stool and received their own stool as the placebo, not someone else's stool. But patients who got their own stool flared. And why would that be? It's not because they, it's not their stool. It's just the nature of the disease that it, you can flare, even if nothing else changes about you. Um, and even two patients in the treatment arm also flared um, that got uh, the actual stool transplant. Um, and again, um, it may or may not be due to having gotten the stool. Um, but overall, um, side effect adverse event profile wasn't, wasn't bad. So we think that for most patients, stool transplant is going to be benign, if not ineffective, particularly for Crohn's, but that in ulcerative colitis, mild to moderate patients, they may actually have benefit from stool transplant, but we don't know who's got the magic stool. We think some donors are better than others. Mm. And we don't know with what frequency they need a maintenance therapy. Do they need daily enema or daily colonoscopy, which would be you know, ridiculous logistically and safety? Um, do they need an encapsulated formula to keep them in maintenance? Do they need some type of dietary adjustment to keep them in maintenance? We don't know. But those questions are slowly being answered. Again, pharma is also looking to develop um, some clusters or spores of, of, of selected bacteria that they think may improve certain species within the gut flora, within the gut microbiome of UC patients that may help them get into remission. 
There are currently phase two studies being done with, with that that are, are promising, but still way too early for prime time. Yeah, well, that's that's very helpful. And thank you for breaking that down. I'm very excited to see, you know, what comes out of that. And five years might seem like a long time, but in my head, I'm thinking, oh, that's quick. That is that is very quick. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to follow that research. And I know we didn't talk about this prior to the recording, but I'm thinking too, another question that I get a lot from patients is what about probiotics? You know, what what about probiotic supplementation? And I personally have seen some benefits of incorporating these probiotics, um, different types of probiotics into an individual's regimen that includes a healthy diet, um, you know, individualized to them, normalizing vitamin D levels, making sure they're consuming, you know, plenty of healthy anti-inflammatory fats. But I haven't found, you know, uh, a probiotic that's become this magical treatment for, you know, their flare-ups or, or any sort of symptoms. But I, I know for sure it's helped with things like, you know, persistent diarrhea or people that struggle with constipation. And um, what is your experience or knowledge there um, that you would share with us? Yeah. You know, um, the AGA, the American Gastroenterology Association, put out a statement on this on probiotics um, after looking at multiple studies and meta-analyses. They put it out, I believe, last summer, I think of 2020. And um, I'll, I'll kind of give the highlights for general health, and then I'll focus on IBD. Uh, for general health, antibody- uh, probiotics across all the studies could not be recommended. Um, but, but that's because there's a lot of heterogeneity and what are you trying to treat? Um, so they couldn't find a general probiotic for everybody, like a general multivitamin, if you will. Um, when it comes to taking antibiotics, if you're taking an antibiotic and you've never had C. diff, never had like that, there are some meta-analyses that this is beyond the scope of the AGA paper. Um, but, uh, that suggests that taking a probiotic, um, any probiotic almost during the course of antibiotics may prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Um, so some of the probiotics that were looked at in some of these studies were things that had lactobacillus or bacteroides or Saccharomyces uh, boulardii, which is a yeast. Um, but they couldn't tell you the strength, um, if it had to be single strain or multi-strain or not. Other studies have just looked at the those different types of characteristics of the probiotic. Multi-strain probiotics might be better than, than single strain. But again, too much heterogeneity in the studies. You know, again, these studies are confounded that they're not controlled, no control arm. They're not done for a long duration of observational time, right? So that, that's why a lot of these things haven't panned out statistically. Um, and, and again, the powers, the, the, the number in these studies, we call that power in statistical terms, is low in many of these studies. So all that aside, multi-strain seems to be better than single strain. Um, um, and uh, uh, other things that we have to, consider when it comes to the IBD patient population is that, uh, again, no single probiotic has been shown efficacious for Crohn's and no single one for UC. However, um, there is some, there are some studies that look at a multi-strain probiotic that has two commercial names, BSL number three and VisBiome, that may help some UC patients experience some symptomatic remission, not gut healing. I'll be very clear, not gut healing, but some symptomatic remission. And it's a very big difference to have ulcers in your gut heal. And it's very different from, from having your symptoms get better. So um, again, um, the, effect, the effect rate is not high. Um, patients who have 
how to collect meat, who have a pouch. Um, they may have pouchitis. There, there is slightly better data for a multi-strain probiotic such as VSL number three or Visbiome improving some of their symptoms. Problems with it, though, are extremely costly. can cost up to 200 bucks a month, sometimes less, sometimes more. And for most patients, that's just not financially, financially you know, doable. You know, um, And also, there's been um, some shortage in um, supply and demand issues, uh, especially with the pandemic. Um, there's one other bacteria that was studied many years ago called E. coli nisli or E. nisli, Escherichia nisli, N-I-S-S-L-E. Um, but there were some early studies that showed some promise. And then to be honest, it kind of fell off the map. I'm not sure what happened with the final research into that. My suspicions is that it didn't pan out. Um, it's something I've, I've tried looking into multiple times and couldn't find more up-to-date material on. Um, I personally think that um, my, I think probiotics for most patients, unless they're on like heavy, heavy chemotherapy, okay, which would be an extreme situation. I think that most patients um, are going to experience some benefit of, of trying a probiotic just to have tried it. It's low risk potential benefit. And if they don't feel a benefit after six weeks or so, I think it's okay for them to go ahead and try um, uh, something different. Absolutely. I love, I love how you kind of sum that up because when that, when the statement came out from the American uh, gastroenterology and I got a lot of emails at that time of friends and family saying, wait a second, they say probiotics aren't good and nobody should be taking probiotics. And I said, well, hold on. We have lots of robust research on, you know, probiotics in terms of inflammation and um, constipation and, you know, mental health, things like that. So it's, we have to pull, you know, a lot of those other factors out, like you mentioned, small sample size or low power and, and really kind of also note that there, there are some potential benefits of it where it is low risk and, and it is very individualized and knowing that if you try it, I say this to clients, if we've tried, you know, certain probiotics and they don't seem to help, then, you know, maybe don't waste your money. And maybe we just focus on dietary things or getting, you know, enough fermented foods into your diet and, stuff like that to help see if, if that kind of helps with your symptoms. So thank you for, for that feedback. Yeah. So I, the last thing that I just want to touch on, and we can kind of just kind of pull together uh, a few sentences on the importance of this because diet is so important. And that was the focus of this episode, but I also want to touch on just stress and lifestyle and IBD because um, you know, we, we have the power of food, but I think the, the statement stress is a silent killer is so powerful and so true. And so I, I would love to just talk about how stress is related to IBD and how stress management is, is absolutely essential when it comes to managing any aspect of your health, but especially intestinal diseases. Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, there's a physical nerve that connects our intestine to our brain. That's the vagus nerve. There are about 100 million neurons in the gut. There's about 100 million neurons in the brain. That is not a, an accident. That's not a coincidence. Um, I, I think that the brain's the second brain. I think the gut was our first brain, okay? We just look at our nematodes, our worms that roll around in the soil. And our central brain just kind of developed after, I think. Um, but there is definitely a communication between the gut brain. And that axis is real. And it mediates IBS. And um, it mediates um, inflammatory signals um, from the gut to the brain. It's a two-way bi-directional street. Um, nutrition plays a role, I feel, I feel um, but that's an early uh, area of research, uh, offensively termed psychobiotics. 
um, how diet can, can affect mood. Um, we're a long way from understanding that. Um, I feel that um, when we we take when we have, when we are stressed, anybody I think most people can relate to this. When you feel stressed, sometimes you take it out on your gut, right? The fight or flight response is a perfect illustration of that, right? If Godzilla is about to eat me, I'm going to poop my pants, uh, probably. Okay, um, and and there's a reason for that, right? Because there's a, a sync between the gut and the brain. Um, when it comes to applying this in IBD. I, I do try to encourage my patients to look at triggers of stress, anxiety, mood disorders, irritability. Um, and, and I find that most of my patients are that um, and recognizing that that's another external or environmental trigger. Um, I don't want to go as far to say that stress causes IBD. I think um, you have IBD and I think that stress can, can make that worse. Okay. Um, if you have concomitant IBS, it can make this, the GI symptoms of IBD, IBS together worse. Um, there are early studies that suggest um, that there is a d- dissemination or synthesis of pro-inflammatory hormones and cytokines from stress or anxiety that can possibly activate or make a Crohn's or colitis perk up or flare. But those are early studies that are done at a molecular level in a lab. That said, my best advice to my patients is embrace mental health. Mm. Embrace your inner self. And if you find any of these words cliche, find the vocabulary that works for you. Because at the end of the day, it's all about you. You are number one. You have to look inwardly and think about how is my day-to-day routine? How are my responsibilities? How is what I take on in the world, work stress, personal stress, family stress, whatever response was, how does that affect my overall health? And if it's affecting you negatively, you need to pull back, reprioritize. And you'll find yourself happier at the end of the day. Two, I try to tell my patients that, especially in our Western country, uh, Westernized societies, we still have a taboo about mental health. There's uh, quite a stigma. And it's so sad and unfortunate. And I think tides are turning. Times are changing. We're embracing it. We know it's important. And it's important that we we pay attention to um, how we feel. Um, are, are we truly happy? You know, and, and people can accomplish this through different ways. They, they can do it through meditation. They can do it through um, uh, journaling and writing. They can talk to a therapist, okay, which I think is really profoundly helpful. Um, there's different ways to handle psychological stress. And honestly, stress is an umbrella term for many different things. But I I do think that stress and mental health are really important in terms of managing because this illness, inflammatory bowel disease, brings on a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. And managing that better can help you manage the symptoms better and may actually directly improve the disease possibly for some patients. Um, but it's not one thing alone. It's going to be that. It's going to be diet. It's going to be working with your doctor and, and, and finding out what meds you do need, right? It's all of the above. All those things, I think, are helpful. Well said. Very well said. I have nothing to add that was perfect. And I think that would be a great place for us to to wrap up. And 
I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on here. I, I could honestly, I would probably go another two hours and um, <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I appreciate you so much for coming on and would love to direct people um, to your podcast. Um, you mentioned the name of your podcast. Uh, I can't remember it. So remind me again. Yeah, it's um, GI Insights at ReachMD. ReachMD is a CME company. Um, but you can find us on Apple and Spotify, um, iTunes, anywhere that podcasts are, GI Insights. Uh, it's myself and a, and a colleague, Peter Buck. Uh, we are both gastroenterologists. We have separate programs, but each of our programs are dedicated to gastrointestinal health. And, and on there, you'll find uh, most of my podcasts are dedicated towards gut health and uh, many are IBD. You can find a listing of them at my website at www.fitwitmd.com. That's fitwit, like fitness witness, not nitwit. <laughs> fitwitmd.com. And you can follow me at fitwitmd on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere. Awesome. Wonderful. And, and then in a quick 20 seconds, what is your favorite childhood memory with food? <laughs> you know, I, you know, something, something really simple comes back, but it is um, cucumbers with salt and pepper. Mm. And, you know, sometimes on a hot day, my, my father and my mother, they would, you know, it's just a simple, something so simple, right? How do you make a cucumber, right? Even more appetizing on a hot, you know, day in Texas, you just cut it open, you slice it and you sprinkle a little bit of salt. I remember sitting on our bench in our backyard, eating that with my parents and just thinking, wow. What a simple delight. And I think about that when I try to prepare my food now. You know, food is such a pleasure. It's something to be enjoyed and not rushed through. And so I think about that cucumber with salt and pepper. Beautiful. That is the simplicity of it is refreshing, pun intended. <laughs> well, thank Nani. you, Erin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was truly my pleasure. Thank you again for coming on and um, look forward to checking out your podcast and staying in touch. Thanks so much, Erin. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you are interested in applying to the next round of group coaching, my group coaching program, it's called Rewire Your Gut. You can go to my website, nutritionrewired.com. You'll see more information about the program there. I'm already over a month into the first group coaching program. It's a very small group, very intimate and personalized, and it's just been amazing and a excellent addition to my practice. And as always, please like, subscribe, share, leave comments. Maybe something in this episode was relatable to you. This really helps to boost my engagement and help keep me motivated to keep putting out this free content. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.